is it you haven't seen the Godfather? Why have you seen Taxi Rashomon? Hello and welcome to another episode of FilmWise, also known as the Why Haven't You Seen This Film podcast. As always, I am Bubba Wheat from Flights, Tights, and Movie Nights, and today my guest is Will Kauf from Silver Emulsion. How are you doing today? Pretty good. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. Well, before we get started, why don't you go ahead and uh, tell everybody a little bit about yourself and your site for those who hadn't listened to your previous uh, appearance on the uh, FilmWise Extra a, a few episodes back. All right. Uh, well, as Bubba Weed has said, my name is Will, and I run Silver Emulsion Film Reviews, and there I review uh, basically anything that I, uh, anything that hits me at the moment. Um, I do have some series that I do regularly, um, but I review mainly martial arts and horror movies and but I go into classics as well and uh, my buddy Steven does anime reviews so it's kind of a, a cult-ish blog but I know I do a lot of mainstream stuff too so I don't know hard to peg that <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a, a mix of everything but uh, um, I always like the seeing some of the the more obscure cult films like I we, I liked back whenever Man of Steel came back out and you uh, covered all the the foreign knockoff super Superman movies. Yeah, that was fun. There's uh, some good ones and some bad ones for sure. <laughs> yeah, and and I still haven't uh, gone and and looked up any of those foreign Superman movies yet, but uh, I do plan to at, at some point in time. Uh, yeah, Turkish Superman should be fairly easy to find. That's yeah. Um, but as always, I also have some questions to get to know your film tastes a little bit better. So what are three films that you've seen the most often and haven't gotten tired of yet? All right. Well, uh, as with any question like this, it could go a million different ways. Uh, but I'm going to go with The Goonies, a movie that I grew up with and have continued to watch forever. Um, when I first got on the internet in the 90s, I made a, a website about it. So <laughs> one of those movies that I love. Um, the original, and I hate that I have to say original, but George Romero's Dawn of the Dead uh, in the mall. Fantastic movie. Excellent effects, even though the zombies are blue. I don't care. <laughs> the movie's awesome. Yeah, I and, haven't seen that one yet. Although that's, that's one instance where uh, a lot of people do seem to like the the remake. It's not one of those where the original is head and shoulders above the the remake, which is just complete crap. There's there's people that don't like the remake, but there's also quite a few people that do. Yeah, it seems that most people like the remake. I didn't like it at all, but that's probably because I love the original so much. Um, but the the remake was written by James Gunn, so that's it'll probably get more. Uh, more well-known even now after James Gunn has become so popular with Guardians. Hmm. I, I didn't even know that connection. Like I, I knew that that James Gunn has worked on a, a very wide spectrum of projects as a writer. Like He wrote uh, the, the first two live-action Scooby-Doo movies. Yeah, he did. I don't know how he got the job, but <laughs> I haven't seen the movies, so I don't know if they're very James Gunn-ish. But. I saw the first one, and, and I generally liked it. All right. Well, I used to like Scooby-Doo, so maybe one day I'll track it down. 
All right, and your third movie? Third movie, uh, I had to pick an Arnold movie because I love Arnold uh, immensely, and I'm going to pick Commando, the movie where he just loads up a bunch of guns and just slaughters as many guerrilla war fighters that he can find, you know, in the last half hour. It blows up you know, a bunch of buildings and just goes nuts. I love it. Nice. Yeah, I haven't seen a lot of Arnold's uh, earlier work. I've seen like his a lot of stuff from his like uh, mid '90s career is probably where I'm most familiar. So I haven't seen like Predator. I, ha- oh. I have seen Conan, but uh, uh, not too much of his earlier stuff. Man, you got to see Predator <laughs> and The Running Man, Total Recall. I've seen Total Recall. Um, all right, so going in a slightly different direction, what's your favorite film that you've only seen once? There's a lot of these because I generally just watch movies once, um, especially now. Mm-hmm. But uh, I'm going to go with a movie that I saw, I think, last year. And it's a Shaw Brothers movie called The Water Margin. Uh, it was released in America in the 70s as Seven Blows of the Dragon. But um, it's a big budget for the time Shaw Brothers movie where they threw like their entire stable of of actors into one movie so there's every star you could possibly think of in the Shaw stable in one movie and it's got everything you could ever want in in a Shaw Brothers movie it's it's based on uh, the famous Chinese novel The Water Margin um, or Outlaws of the Marsh and it's just a big spectacle movie it's great I love it nice yeah I, I don't think uh, that doesn't ring a bell I I'm not too well versed in in the the Shaw brothers and, and martial arts films in general but uh, I know it's it's got a lot of fans out there yeah uh, they're great I mean they're always thought of as B movies by a lot of people in the West uh, because of you know that when they came over here they were all dubbed and the dubbing is questionable but they are they have a lot of a merit to them mm-hmm all right, and of course, I always ask everyone, what is your favorite superhero movie? I would love to pick something um, obscure <laughs> and unique, but I think I have to go with probably most people and say The Avengers. When I saw it, I turned into a little 10-year-old kid, just giddy with pleasure, and it, it's just a great superhero movie. Yeah, I, I I seem like I get that reaction a lot to whenever I ask this question anymore. It's if it almost feels like you don't want to pick the Avengers just because that's um, that it seems like the the two answers almost always come down to either the Dark Knight or the Avengers. Yeah, those are the two big ones. But it's it's really hard to imagine any anything else, uh, although. Here in the next few years, it, things may change because, I mean, there's always the the next movie yeah. that comes out. and The next 20 years <laughs> full of superhero movies. Yeah, but and, and they all seem to be getting, I don't know, better might not be the word, but bigger uh, would definitely be a word for it. Yeah, definitely with the Marvel stuff, they seem to be... Uh, moving in a good direction, especially with the Infinity Gauntlet stuff coming up. And that was a a big storyline when I was uh, probably 12 or something like that. So I I look forward to that. Yeah, uh, although I'm 
I'm a little surprised that I haven't started hearing people um, mention Guardians of the Galaxy yet, because I, I know that was a, a big one that, that just came out this year, but I guess that still has to have a little t- little bit of time for people to, to let it sink in and uh, rewatch it again whenever it comes out here in a, a couple weeks on home video. Yeah, I think you're definitely going to hear some of that, because Guardians was awesome. Mm-hmm. All right, and since you do cover a, a wide variety, including several narrow niches in some of your series, but if you were to exclusively start writing on one narrow niche of films, like superhero movies or, or Shaw Brothers films, uh, what would that be? Um, well, I thought a lot about this, and I think it would have to be horror movies. I do the whole month of October, um, as probably hundreds of other blogs do, as just horror. And I have more fun that month than the other 11 months. I just wait for that October to come around, and then I just gorge on horror movies, and I love it so much. I think I could do that, but not that the world needs another horror blog. But yeah, If you were – if you're able to – maybe narrow down on like a subgenre of horror. Uh, do you have like a favorite subgenre? Cause I, I know horror is a pretty wide genre. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Eighties horror is, is not really a subgenre, but eighties horror is, is the sweet spot for me. Yeah. That's, that's a, a good, a good choice. I, I know a lot. Well, I don't know. I, I think there's some gems in there, but it also, now that I think about it, that's that seems to be when a lot of the, like the uh, what people think of as kind of the cheesy era of horror. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's it's fun. It's like what I think of it is um, a lot of the people who grew up watching '50s monster movies were then making movies. So the, there's a lot of throwbacks to that kind of. You know, the movies like Them with the big ants. There's, I don't know, there's a lot of throwbacks to 50s stuff in the 80s, and the 80s is always focused on fun, and the physical effects were kind of at their pinnacle in the 80s to me. Mm-hmm. So they're just, I, I love 80s movies, just in general, but horror movies are, are especially good in that era for me. Yeah, that, that is a good point, because that, that is like, right... That's like just before a transition into digital effects, right? Right. So you, you have people that so you have people that have been practicing their entire life and, and working on the practical effects to get them as best as good as possible, and it's before people start going over to the the cheap digital effects. Yeah. All right, and um, finally. What would you say right now is your biggest film-wise, a, a film that you haven't seen yet that you feel like you have probably should have gotten around to it by now for whatever reason? Yeah, this is another hard question. Um, but I, I ended up going with uh, a John Ford movie called The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. Mm. I haven't seen a whole lot of John Ford movies, and he made a whole lot of movies. And it seems like this one has been on my radar since, I don't know, 15 years ago and I always keep pushing it off because the the title doesn't sound too appealing to me Mm -hmm. um but I I should I should watch it yeah that's that's one of those movies where I'm not even sure if if I've put it on my letterboxed movies my letterbox watch list that um that I have guests look through to to choose movies but it is one that I have um in my 
opening intro where it goes through a, a the uh, a lot of different movies. So it, that's that's an interesting choice that that you picked that one. Oh, that's funny. Um, all right. Well, it's good to to hear a little bit more about your your movie tastes. But now it's time to get into the film that you had me watch for the first time, Rashomon. At the beginning of time, aliens came to the Earth to create the ultimate organic weapon. They created mankind. Among the alien remains was found the unit, a bio-boosted alien armor. Worn by the aliens, it serves as an ordinary shield. If the wearer is human, it increases his natural powers a hundredfold. But how to activate it remains a mystery. All right, so Rashomon is a 1950 uh, Akira Kurosawa movie, and uh, it's basically a story of um, a man and his wife are, are traveling, and they come upon, come upon a bandit who kills the man and rapes the wife. And we are now um, being told the story from uh, each of their point of views because uh, the the truth is obscured. We don't know what the truth is because they were the only people there, and so now they're in the they're being questioned by the police. And it's it's I don't know. I've kind of stalled out here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um- one of the things that that I like to talk about is what I knew about this film before I watched it, and okay. and this was always one of the ones that I've wanted to see because this this seems like it's one of the the origins of a certain storytelling technique that's that's used in in a lot of my favorite um it's like one of my favorite storytelling devices it's a, a product of my all time favorite episode of The Simpsons. Oh, okay. uh, the the trilogy of error and it's the the device where you get to see basically the the same event from several different perspectives and each perspective gives a a different portion of the story and it's up to you as the viewer to put it all together but what i didn't realize is that this one doesn't it doesn't exactly do that because um, in this film, basically everyone is not telling the entire truth of right. what's of what's happening. So you're not really getting you're not really seeing pieces of the of the whole, but you're seeing the same story told where things happen slightly differently each time based on the person's perspective and and basically how they want the story to come off as how it represents them right they they always want to make themselves come off in the best light so the bandit story is very like oh he's you know boasting about how he did this and how he did that but then in the other story he's cowering and you know it's it's completely different takes yeah. on each story yeah and i i think that the best element that that showcases that is the and the other thing that like I always thought that it was the same story told from three different perspectives, uh-huh. uh, but it's actually told from four different perspectives. Yeah, because... they kind of obscure that. That's like the spoiler alert, you know. <laughs> yeah, which I don't know. It's it seems kind of weird that to think that that element is a spoiler, which I, in a way, like the fourth story is supposed to be the true story. Yeah, but at the same time. 
the that person the, there's also doubt called on his version of the story as well. Right, because then the, the the other guy uh, that has come to the Rashomon Gate um, says like, "Oh well, what happened to that dagger? You didn't say anything about the dagger." And then you know the the truth comes out of that. So even he is you know obscuring things to make himself look better. Yeah, but I I think one of the one of the best elements that of watching this that really showcases the differences between the perspectives is is the fight scene uh, because the the first story we hear from is from the the bandits played by a uh, Kurosawa regular uh, Toshiro Mifune um and he describes as he describes the fight it it's like an epic battle um he he notes that they that he had 23 sword clashes which no one had ever um done more than 20 in any previous fight and you see this like epic sword battle uh between the bandits and the husband and then whenever we get to the end whenever it's the uh the the woodcutter's story uh he shows the same fight except it's the two of them just like completely bumbling and barely knowing how to fight and, and just it's like a turns into a comedy of errors yeah, I love that that fight at the end. It seems a lot more realistic to me because I mean, I don't know. The the first fight seems like kind of your movie samurai kind of thing, not that this is a samurai movie, but just like movie sword fight, it's everything is very precise and choreographed and then by the end it's like, oh, these are real people sort of struggling for their lives and doing anything that they have to and just crawling and flopping everywhere and I mean it is kind of a little bit ridiculous that, you know, they're falling as much as they are, but I don't know, it seems more realistic to me. Mm-hmm. And and I also thought it was interesting that that you immediately um whenever you were describing what happens that um uh, that the bandit rapes the, the wife because uh, of course this was in in 1950 and like i i also got that impression just because of of how serious they made it out to be but the the rape consists of just a, a long kiss yeah i mean that's that's the shot at that point but that definitely the rape definitely happens it's implied and they they talk about it a lot about how oh now she's been with two men and and she can't be with her husband anymore so then you know uh Toshida Mufune is like oh well you can marry me you know which is another difference in the stories where one he's kind of begging her to marry him and stuff instead of just asking her or, or taking her or whatever yeah like in in the first story the bandit story um the the wife um like af- after after that happens she like basically falls for the bandits over right, right. over her husband, but she says that uh, she can't she can't bear the thought of having two people know what happened, so they have to fight each other and um, and the other ones um, like like you said in, in the last one he's like begging her to marry him. Yeah, he's like near tears, just like. <laughs> with guilt and everything it's uh it's awesome yeah and and of course it it's interesting too because whenever you think about it like even with these four stories 
the the real truth is somewhere in the middle. Yeah, you have to take all the stories and kind of uh, distill it down into the actual truth. Um, to, but you never will know what happens, and that's kind of how any uh, event is that you're not there. You're just taking people at their word and sort of trying to figure out what the subtext is and stuff. Yeah, I like. I always like the. Uh, I think it's a saying. Like, whenever you get the story, whenever there's uh, there's always three sides to any story. There's his side, there's her side, and there's what really happened. Yeah, because everybody is going to try to make themselves look better. I mean, not everybody, but you know, most people. Yeah, because it's interesting too. Because with the the wife's take um, on it, it's she more or less implies that she accidentally was the one that killed her husband. Yeah, I don't remember that. I don't know. I just watched the movie, but <laughs> well, she like she said that uh, the bandit ran off, and um, her husband was looking at her with disgust for basically uh, allowing herself to be taken. Yeah, that's right, that's right, okay. And she couldn't stand it, and she picked up the, the dagger, and then she blacked out and didn't know what happened and woke up at the at the pool where she tried to drown herself. Yeah, I remember now. I don't know, my memory's not great sometimes. I'd <laughs> <laughs> um, say, I'm I'm trying to think, and, and of course we, we've kind of... Um, danced around the the uh the framing device where all this is all these stories are coming out because it's uh raining at this uh Rashomon temple which is like this almost ruins of a temple it's like halfway destroyed and and boarded up and it, it's these people that are these three people that are just um taking shelter from the rain and you have this other bandit who comes in, and he's just basically trying to get out of the rain and get himself dry, and he's bored. And so they're just talking with each other, and um, the the woodcutter, I guess, is the one that's that kind of starts it out because he's still he's talking about how he doesn't understand it, or or was it the I'm a little confused. Was the person that told the supposedly true story? The, that same guy who told the first story or was that another person that had come in? It was the same guy. Okay. It's uh, the woodcutter. He, he's the first guy at the beginning who's like, I don't understand, you know, how I don't I don't get it. And then, um, yeah, he's the same guy who's also in a bunch of Kurosawa movies um, and other movies. Uh, Takashi Shimura, he's awesome. Yeah, him I didn't recognize as much. Because the um, the only other Kurosawa movie that I have seen was Seven Samurai. Oh, okay. I had wondered if you had seen any other Kurosawa movies. Yeah, and and of course uh, Mifune plays a, a big role in, in Seven Samurai, so I, I definitely recognized him immediately. Um, yeah, um, there's a Kurosawa movie called Akiru that uh, Shimura is the lead in, and. That is definitely one to see if you're going to venture further into Kurosawa, which you should, because he's great. <laughs> yeah, I, I know he's. Uh, I've I mostly enjoyed. Uh, I definitely enjoyed Rashomon uh, better than than Seven Samurai. I, I know some people might uh, scoff at that, but um, I just think that 
I mean, Seven Samurai had a lot of great uh, filmmaking moments in it, and it's visually great, but it's a really long movie where Rashomon uh, is is only an hour and a half. So right. it was a, a much quicker watch, and um, and I really and it really got to the heart of the story. It, it's it feels like a very tight movie uh, compared to Seven Samurai. Yeah, it is, and yeah, I I totally get that. Seven Samurai is very long. I've only watched it myself a couple times because it is so long. Um, it is great, but I definitely like other of of Kurosawa movies better than Seven Samurai, even though that's the, like the big one. Yeah, and um, going back to the like the the wraparound and like this this movie is called Rashomon, just based on the the name of this temple where they're all um, staying at. Uh, although I believe I read in the trivia that um, that Rashomon has become uh, an entry in the dictionary for. Um, where its meaning now describes this type of storytelling from to get the same story from different perspectives. Oh, that's funny. It's in the dictionary now. <laughs> Weird. Yeah, at, at least in in one edition. Uh-huh. So I know they're always occasionally take words out and always adding new words in, like selfie. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, but that's a topic for. It's <laughs> a completely different topic. Um. But yeah, this so they're like just talking in the rain, and, and we have this woodcutter, we have this priest, and then we have this bandit, and the bandit is just basically there trying to, um, he's just trying to pass the time, and it, it's just a way to to keep from being bored and, until it stops raining, or at least until he dries off, because he does leave before it stops raining. Yeah, he does. And to me, I mean, the the movie is called Rashomon, and they are at the Rashomon uh, place. So that is a clue. And to me, that that framing story is is the actual like meat of the movie. The rest of it is sort of just um, it's the plot, but it it is just enhancing the themes that are present in that framing device. Um, because like the the priest is talking about at the beginning how he's losing his faith in the human soul after they've heard these stories and then they're relating it to um the band the the, the other bandit that's there while they're in this ruined gate which is um you know could be a representative of the the destroyed human soul that is now you know it used to be great and now it's uh, all messed up and it's raining which is another sort of symbol for um you know strife and uh something not it's not the same as sunny you know sunny is very happy and rain is is not so much Mm -hmm. And, and um by the end of the movie instead of ending on the note that um the faith in the human soul is we've found that yes it is gone they end it with um the woodcutter sort of redeeming himself and grabbing that baby and taking it home as the rain has lifted, you know? So I, I just love that, that framing story a lot. Yeah. And, and they also talk a lot about how like the, everything is in turmoil because there's war, there's famine, there's plague. Yeah. Yeah. Um, then the bandits like, 
because the, it's the the priest that starts talking about that, and the band that's like, oh, "Stop preaching to me." Yeah, he doesn't care, and like somewhere around there, maybe right after that, he just walks up to the part of the the wall and like rips some boards off. He doesn't care. He's just tearing it down and and starting to burn it, you know. Whereas the other guys are just trying to preserve what they already have, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah, he he doesn't care. He's just ripping wood off the walls to make a fire to keep himself warm and, right. and to dry his own clothes. And then um, the other interesting moment about this is we see uh, flashbacks to the, uh, I guess it's the trial, because the this guy captures uh, the bandit and brings him in, in the trial. Right. And he's the one that... Um, that they believe killed the husband um, and they're just trying to, to get the whole story. And whenever they have the scenes of the trial, we don't get to see any, we only get to see like the judge's perspective. So that that's, um, that's an interesting way to make, uh, because in a, in a way it allows the audience to be the judge of the the trial and uh, so the audience is the one that's trying to to figure out the the merits of the case right yeah they speak directly to us the audience and we never hear uh, the questions that are asked to them either they're just yeah. talking you know as if we are asking them the questions mm-hmm. which is yeah, yeah a, a great stroke of uh, filmmaking there. Yeah, there's like a great moment where at the end of uh, the bandit story, whenever um, he's like, "What the dagger? Oh, uh, I don't know what happened to the dagger." And what the sword? Uh, the the samurai sword? Oh, I sold that for I sold that in town for some liquor. Yeah. And, and it was, there's also like great bits of humor here and there. Like I I love the fact the how it starts and. Um, how the the guy that's captured the bandit uh, said that he must have fell off his horse, um, and then uh, Mifuni like just starts laughing, and he's like, and he tells the story about how he stopped to take a drink from the stream, and then it right. basically later he got the runs, and he was uh, <laughs> he was crouching down. And and that's how the guy got captured because he had he had like diarrhea I guess right right <laughs> because he said he suspected that uh, that like a poisonous sta- snake had died up upstream or something so he drank some bad water right yeah because God forbid he actually fell off his horse and somebody knew about it you know he's always trying to protect that that uh, furious bandit image of him <laughs> although it's funny that. To think that that it would put him in a better light to, that he had <laughs> right, stomach <right>. issues. <laughs> well, it happens to the best of us. Um, and we haven't talked much about the wife um, because she is is kind of an interesting character, to where she, um, like she said, tends to be this like in each story she. She's always like shamed after the bandit, but like there's always this element that, uh, in, well, basically in every story except hers, I believe, to where she's not in, not especially in a happy marriage. 
Yeah, yeah, she does seem to want to get away from him an awful lot in most of the stories. Like the in the bandit story, he she immediately falls for him, and then in the um, in the husband, <laughs> we also haven't talked about the husband's story because that that's told through a, a spiritual medium, right? Yeah, <laughs> which is also kind of a, a funny a funny moment because it's this woman and kind of looking at it from a modern perspective, it's. It's a little jarring because, like, whenever you first see it, she's dressed almost exactly the same as the wife. Yeah, um, but then she's speaking with the male voice. Mm-hmm. And even even throughout the whole movie, we don't get to hear the the husband speak very often because most of the movie, he's either just walking silently through the woods or he's tied to the stump being silent. Yeah, that's true. I never really thought about that. He doesn't talk much. Pretty much the only time he does talk is through this medium. Yeah. And and I wonder if that's that says something about Japanese culture at that time. If there's yep, perhaps, some, I don't know. Yeah, if there's something to be said about that. Um but yeah, in his uh, in his story, his wife is a little bit more um in a lesser light. Too. Right, because he's probably unhappy if she's unhappy in the marriage. And then um, I like how he kills himself in that version because that's, for him, the most honorable thing. Even though he's dead and, and he he shouldn't be uh, worrying about honor, but he still is. He doesn't care. Although there is an element with the medium where you have to wonder... Is is the medium? Because if you if you have some uh, skepticism about the the supernatural element, you can say, well, is the medium making up this story for him and trying to you know turn it how she would, right. or or is she actually contacting him? I think the movie is under the the assumption that she is actually contacting him, but there is a, that layer for skeptics such as myself, right? Because. Uh like it, it's hard to tell if within the world of the film if she's actually contacting his spirit and really telling his side which i do think that that it does give a bit more credence to the fact that um the film does want um you to believe that it that it really is his story because she is speaking with his voice right right that's like the big key that makes me think that yeah, so so it adds that level of uh, the fantasy element um, to where if she was just speaking in the actress's voice, then that might create a little bit more doubt to to the the accuracy of her ability. Right, right. Um, well, is there anything else that that you'd like to talk about? I I remember there was one other thing that I remember seeing in the trivia that this is. Um, this is regarded as the first time in filmmaking that the camera was actually pointed directly at the sun. Yeah, that's one of the big cinematography things about this movie, um, and just pointing it right at the sun to get those lens flares and things. Um, and, and from what I understand, that was a big reason why a lot of people, like um, filmmaking people, uh, latched onto this movie and were very impressed with it. Like it won... Uh, the Venice 
uh, film festival. I think it, I don't remember Golden Bear, Golden Lion, something like that. Uh, mm. Whatever the top prize is. Yeah. And and it's also um, thought of as quite possibly being the reason why the uh, the Oscars created the category Best Foreign Film. Yeah, it, it won an Oscar like back in in uh, it seems like in the older days they would just make up an Oscar if they thought something was was warranted an Oscar even if the, if they didn't have a category like I know Planet of the Planet of the Apes won um, and I believe there was no category for makeup but they just won something mm-hmm. like that anyway Rashomon was one of those movies that won uh, like a foreign Oscar and it was a few years before they created that foreign film category. Mm-hmm. But also, one thing that I did want to say about Rashomon, unrelated to the actual story, just the, uh, for the legacy of it, it's uh, basically the first Japanese movie to get a wide release in the U.S. Um, and because it was a huge success, it led to a lot of other foreign movies coming uh, to America and it's sort of like the first foreign movie to get that big push and it's it's funny to think about it now because now we get movies from all over the world all the time we don't get everything but we get a good amount of things more than anybody could ever watch in one lifetime and to think about a world uh, in 1950 well it came here and a little bit later but whatever anyway at that time it was pretty much just um, American films uh, after the advent of sound, because in silent they could, you know, they're silent, so they could have a lot of foreign films at that time. But I don't know. I'm down the rabbit hole now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it is interesting to think that think about it now because um, it really is at, at the time where I mean, it pretty much every country has um, has cinema, like every. Uh, at least every major country has has their own cinema and their own filmmakers, yeah. and it, it all gets distributed like on on its own merits. Like it doesn't matter what country it comes from or what language it's in. If if it's a good movie, then it will find its place. Yeah, pretty much. And back then, it wasn't really like that. Like specifically, mm. I know a lot about the Shaw Brothers stuff, and none of that would get released in America until way later when Bruce Lee hit and Bruce Lee became a big all-star and then they started looking at the back catalog of Shaw Brothers and saying, oh, let's bring some of these over and dubbing them and stuff like that. But before that, uh, the American audience, the the American executives or guests didn't care to even look at any of those films to bring them over. Mm Mm-hmm. All right. Well, um, that was a good, um, a lot about Rashomon. But now we are going to take a quick break, and whenever we come back, we're going to have we're going to talk about the film that I had you watch for the first time, which was also a first time for me, The Giver. This podcast is a proud member of the Lamb Podcasting Network. Find the network at largeassmovieblogs.com. Hello, and I'm Nick. And I'm Joe. And I'm Vern. Together we host the As You Watch podcast. And drink beer? Burn! <laughs> We're a movie podcast, not a beer one. I know. I just enjoy having one when I'm talking with friends. And that's what the show feels like. Hanging out with your friends and talking about movies. So check us out on iTunes or on our website at asyouwatch.wordpress.com. 
The Giver came out in 1991 and is probably best known as one of the many low-budget films that Mark Hamill did after Star Wars. It's a cheesy sci-fi comedy loosely based off a Japanese manga about this kid who finds an alien object that melds with him and turns him into a, a part man, part alien, part cyborg, or, or something like that, called the, the Giver, who ends up going after members of this alien race that created it, who are all po- posing as members of this uh, Kronos comp- Corporation. Um that are just trying to to get it and become the 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 zoonoid leader, uh, which is, uh, I believe, the the name of the race of aliens. It, it's just this really weird uh, superhero alien sci-fi comedy, all all wrapped up and and uh, next to next to Mark Hamill, the next most recognizable name is Jimmy Walker. <laughs> Which I I have not seen Good Times, but I know the legacy of Jimmy Walker, and it, it's just so bizarre to, to see him. But before I get too farther down that hole, what did you think about The Giver? Uh, well, I enjoy uh, low budget movies, so I I did enjoy this movie. Um, I will say that there are a lot of other recognizable names if uh, you are a fan of 80s horror movies. The the movie was produced by Brian Yuzna, who also produced um, a lot of Stuart Gordon movies in the 80s, like Reanimator and From Beyond. And there's a lot of people from those movies uh, in this one, like Jeffrey Combs has a little cameo at the end as one of the scientists. And the co-director is Screaming Mad George. Yeah. (laughs) Which this uh, apparently is his only feature film directing credit, and he's best known as being a special effects guy and having the name Screaming Mad George. (laughs) Yeah. Both Both of the directors are FX guys, actually, and they... They they worked at the Stan Winston studio, and so they helped uh, create, like, the Predator suit and, I don't know, other things that Stan Winston did. Stan Winston is big, known for his full-body suit work, so clearly, you know, they took uh, what they learned there and brought it to the Giver and made a whole bunch of full-body suit alien monster yeah, and weird kind of things. <laughs> if if I didn't know any better, I, I would almost say that this that this movie was almost like a uh, feature length uh, film reel for them to show off their um, uh, creature effect effects work. Yeah, I mean, whenever an FX uh, team or something like that directs a movie, I always get really excited because I know that there's going to be a lot of effects and they're probably going to be good because. Uh, nobody knows how to shoot effects like effects guys. Um, like the early Peter Jackson movies are are fantastic for effects because he did all the effects and he was shooting them. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's some fantastic effects in this movie. Yeah, especially like um, the the things that I noticed were like the um, the scenes where the the Giver unit, <laughs> which. And going, I want to go back just quickly to the the opening credit scrawl, <laughs> yeah. which it, it's it's this like Star Wars style scrawl, but it's also being narrated, 
and it it goes over a lot of terms and it gives a lot of weight to terms like the giver and the zoonoids and the unit in quotation yes. marks. <laughs> they throw a lot of stuff at you in that in that scroll. So much that I was kind of confused before the movie even started. It's like, okay, who zoonoids and zoolord and okay, what's going on? <laughs> Whatever, yeah. let's go. <laughs> yeah, because apparently in in the world of this movie, the zoonoids created genetically engineered humans. Yeah, which I, I thought was kind of interesting. Engineered them as the a weapon, but then they don't go into. Any like how are they using them as a weapon? I don't know. It, it's just very yeah, and, and I think it's also it's also kind of funny the way they describe this Giver unit is if a Zoonoid uses it, uses it, it's a shield. But if a human uses it, it turns him into this uh, uh, this weapon that's a hundred times more powerful than a hu- than a regular human. Right, like, I, what was the purpose of that when they were making it, you know? <laughs> like, oh, let's make a shield, and then maybe side effect? Oh, if a human uses it, they get super powerful? I don't know. Seems <laughs> it's very odd. You can't think about B-movies too much, or else they all fall apart. <laughs> yeah, and and I also thought it was kind of surprising, because, especially if you look at the, the cover art, uh, because uh, obviously the, the most... The most notable name is Mark Hamill, and the the cover art shows like half of Mark Hamill's face, and then the the Giver face. Yeah. Uh, and so you expect that Mark Hamill is going to be the Giver, but no, it, it's this no name kid actor that's uh, uh, his character name is Sean, and and Mark Hamill is this like uh, police detective. Yeah, who's like completely useless. I mean, what does Mark Hamill even get to do? He points a gun at some monsters, and I mean, he does get probably the best effect in the movie at the end when he transforms. Mm -hmm. But other than that, I mean, yeah, I was very disappointed that that he wasn't the Giver. I was looking forward to that. Yeah, although I I will say that there's like a nice joke, because he's... um, And, I don't know, there is just so much bizarre stuff, like the this uh, scientist is trying to sneak the this Giver unit away from the the Kronos Corporation because even though it's this this zoonoid this alien technology these aliens don't know how to activate it right i thought that was funny too cuz all the all the guy does to activate it is just like he falls. <laughs> yeah, he hits his head on it, and then it just attaches to him. Yeah, it's like, did they try to, you know, push the button there? <laughs> uh, but he's um, like the scientist is supposed to be meeting Mark Hamill, and um, with the Giver unit that he stole from this corporation, and he ends up getting killed by the aliens. But he did a switch. Uh, he swapped the brief the briefcase. And then Mark Hamill goes back and and tells um, tells his the scientist's daughter that her father is dead, and then we're in this martial arts class with the the kid Sean, who eventually becomes the Giver, and he is really bad at kung fu. <laughs> yeah, he's awful. Yeah, he's like not paying attention. He's more interested in. The, the girl who who has the best name ever. Uh, her name is Mitski. <laughs> yeah, definitely never heard that name before. 
And um, and then he like goes over to her house later that evening because she was he was supposed to get a ride from her, but she was distraught because her father had died. <laughs> right. And he gets jealous because he sees Mark Hamill in in the mirror because Mark Hamill's hiding behind the door because he thinks something's going to happen to her. Um, and then after he leaves, Mark Hamill just goes, "Well, that's a bad place for a mirror." <laughs> Yeah, and it, it's just weird. filled with all these just weird jokes and like JJ Jimmy Walker um, plays. Which let me ask you, what did you think about the the design of Jimmy Walker's Zoonoid? Um, I well, I didn't like it because it seems just like a racial stereotype, like amped up and uh, to, to exaggerate like his lips and he looks kind of like Jar Jar, which is kind of weird. Yeah. That's, um, that's where I was going. I, he looks for people who haven't seen it, which I'm sure most people listening to this have not seen the Giver, but he looks like a cross between a gremlin and Jar Jar Binks. Yeah. He does have a gremlin thing going too with those big ears. Mm-hmm. And he just, he talks like, I imagine Jimmy Walker would talk. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I feel bad for Jimmy Walker because he was on the, the show and he got the dynamite and he kind of got pigeonholed into that. So now they probably only gave him jobs if he would be kind of jive. So I feel bad for him because I feel like he could do more than that. But it, very strange to even have him in there as an alien. Like, it didn't seem to work at all. And then the the monsters rapping. And it's <laughs> like, come on. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, MC Striker. Yeah. <laughs> I could have done without that. Yeah, and and there's also that, that scene, which, I don't know, it's kind of funny, but it always bothers me a little bit, where they kind of stumble into this film set. Oh, I loved that. That was awesome. <laughs> because the the scream, the screaming, the scream queen um, is a big, big horror movie star, Linnea Quigley. And oh, like that's the, yeah, that's I I didn't recognize her name, but or I mean I didn't recognize her by sight, but yeah. I do recognize her name now because uh, um, she's friends with another podcast and, and friend of the show, Invasion of the. B movies or oh, okay. Lara, Lara the Unwanted, yeah, Invasion uh-huh. of B movies was his site. Lara the Unwanted is the podcast. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, she's like the scream queen of the '80s. So I loved how he, he just jumps into the film set and, and there's Linnea Quigley. I don't know, it was fun <laughs> for me. Yeah, I, I, I do. I think that the best part of that scene was the scream because, like, she just goes into this extremely long scream. Yeah, just extreme close-up scream. That was awesome. And and it goes on forever, and then <laughs> she gets mad at him for stepping on her cue. <laughs> um, and then and then of course the director comes in and mistakes uh, MC Striker as the movie monster and starts giving him direction. Yeah. <laughs> and then there's a lot it, of scenes like that in movies. I don't, that's like a common trope of of monster movies, I think. Yeah, the the thing that always bugs me about that though is that 
I would think that the director would have better knowledge of what his movie monster is supposed to look like. You would think. I mean, especially when the the real guy came out and it looked kind of like a shark suit, (laughs) which didn't make – I mean, I don't know. Like a, a, a biped shark walking around. I wish you could see more of that suit because it, it seems like it would be funny. Yeah, it definitely looked like more of a, a generic, low low quality um, suit creature suit rather yeah. than but rather than the stuff that we actually get for the zoonoids. <laughs> yeah. Um. But yeah, the it's just like one. A movie cliche after the other. <laughs> there's yeah, there's so much dumb stuff in this movie, but I I don't know. I, I had a good time. Like yeah, I really I... liked the part when he, uh, in the switched briefcase, uh, David Gale, the the Zoa Lord, mm-hmm. he gets there's they put a toaster in there. <laughs> yeah, and then later in the movie, <laughs> he's using the toaster. <laughs> I thought that was, like, it was hilarious, but it was so bizarre. (laughs) The fact that that he's just using this piece of junk toaster that, that, um, that they swapped for the Giver unit. And it's just like setting this this toast on fire. And well, that's it's why somebody mostly, threw it out, you know. And it's mostly like just a background gag too. Yeah, it's only if you like remember. Oh, they used the toaster in the in the switcheroo. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like there's stuff like that that's great. And then um, one other just line delivery that made me laugh so hard um, is the scene where. Um, Sean first becomes the Giver because you get this stereotypical scene where he runs into a bunch of street thugs and they're all just the most cliche street thugs ever. Like you get the big brutish guy who talks like like an idiot, like, oh, I'll get him. Yeah. <laughs> and then um, after he turns into the, the Giver and starts beating them all up, um, and then the the big brutish guy is like the last one, and he finally pulls out a gun and starts shooting him. And then uh, he had, he has the best line. He's like, "I ain't got no more bullets." <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> and just the way he said it, just I don't know, just set me off. Maybe it was because it was late at night, but I just thought that was so hilarious. Just just the timing of it and and where that came and it just like came out of nowhere and it was such a bad line delivery too but i just thought it was hilarious so much of the line delivery in this movie was just off it's like they didn't care you know i mean one good thing about effects people directing is that the effects are great (laughs) but they clearly don't know how to do the anything else. Directors, yeah, because the the lines were delivered horribly. <laughs> yeah, I, I think especially Mizki. Um, yeah, she was pretty bad. Like she she almost spoke like she had just learned English. Uh, yeah. A year before. Yeah, she was bad. I mean, even Mark Hamill was bad, and <laughs> I know that Mark Hamill can be great from you know obviously Star Wars, but he's in a movie um, that I love called The Big Red One. It's a war movie. And he's great in it, but yeah. this one, you know, you wouldn't know it from the Giver. <laughs> yeah, he's he's just so flat for most of it, and and he has this weird looking mustache. Yeah, that mustache just... <laughs> doesn't look good on him. 
I guess just to to help um, get him further away from Luke Skywalker, because I imagine he thought figured without the mustache he looked too much like Luke. Yeah, this, guess, this I mean, was just a couple years after Return of the Jedi. Yeah, I guess it was pretty close. I don't know. He doesn't really look like Luke to me. Maybe it was the mustache. I don't know. Maybe it worked on me. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, it's. I don't know. There's just. It's hard to think of something else to talk about this movie, just because it. It's so weird and bizarre and doesn't make any sense. Um, yeah, the effects in when um, specifically when the armor comes off of him where they just like rip it off of him. And I don't know how those, how it works. I guess the, the tendrils or whatever are coming out of his neck and then grabbing the armor, but you just see it as they're just getting ripped off screen. I just, it looks so good. I don't know how they did it, but I, I yeah. enjoyed that quite a bit. Yeah. That, that was definitely something like the, the moments with the armor coming on and, and coming off. Yeah. Just looked absolutely uh, stunning, and like you mentioned, um, where uh, because Mark Hamill he gets captured by by the Cronus Corporation, and they start the process to turn him into a Zoanoid, but then um, Misky and Sean rescue him out and break him out of the the like tube, but because he was halfway through the process, he starts he still starts transforming. And you get this, um, you get this moment that looks like something out of the thing. Yeah, it does look like the thing a lot. Yeah. And he starts transforming, and it's it really is like the best special effects scene in the movie because it's this just amazing, grotesque transformation into this bug-like creature where you still see his most of his face, and it's but at some point it's it's hard to tell for sure if it's still Mark Hamill's face or if it's like a completely prosthetic face. Yeah, like when the the head starts like the neck grows or whatever and it starts pushing mm-hmm. out. Oh yeah. man, that was awesome. <laughs> yeah, that and it it all has and he's like got these mandibles coming out of his chin and then he just like dies and and there's like an, another great moment is whenever they the Zoanoids defeat the Giver for the first time where they, they rip the ball out of his forehead, and yeah. then the rest of his body just melts. Yeah, I love a good body melting, and that was that was fun. And that was good. And and then, of course, we get the, get the fact that um, the Giver can basically regenerate just from that, regenerate his entire body just from that little ball. Yeah, that, that part was completely unexpected, and I just loved that so much. <laughs> Because he gets the the ball, they were like fighting with it or whatever, and then it goes down um, the Jeffrey Combs monster's mouth, and they try and the other monster's trying to reach down his neck to get it, but he can't get it, and then all of a sudden the the arm blade of the Giver just like rips open the the stomach, and then the Giver fully formed just bursts cesareans from his <laughs> stomach. <laughs> And puts up his arms like he just won, you know, like he's just uh, at the Olympics, you know, just did a gymnast run or something. <laughs> <laughs> so great. That's the kind of stuff that I love about B-movies, because you, you wouldn't get 
something like that in a mainstream Hollywood movie, like nobody's going to ever green light that. They're going to oh, we should change it to be more realistic. But in a B movie, they'd be like, you know, oh, we got this idea. He's going to birth himself from this ball and come out of the monster's stomach. And everyone just goes, okay, let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Yeah. And, uh, and then like the, the last one, which, I do think is kind of the weakest moment is whenever we do get to see the the big boss guy, the Zoa Lord, where he turns into this giant like stop motion creature. Yeah, th- that was definitely disappointing. Um, there's only so much that you could do with that. I was expecting. I was surprised that they had him walking around. I thought they would just have like a giant head kind of come out of that doorway, and then you would fight the head. Uh, yeah. To make it the scale seem bigger, but they actually had him walking around, and which I I will say that that the head looked really great, but the yeah. the 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 body and and the movement was definitely like poor stop motion. Yeah, I don't know if it was stop motion. It was something. It was like a model or something. It might have been stop motion, but something about it just didn't seem all that intimidating. And he seems to go get, uh, he he goes down a lot easier than than the other guys did. It seems like, and at the end, you know, he's supposed to be the Zoa Lord. You know, we've been hearing about this guy since the beginning of the movie in the scroll, which sounds like a uh, Power Rangers villain. Yeah, yeah. There's definitely I don't know what year Power Rangers came out in America, but it seems like the the humor, the juvenile humor, kind of. And, like, the, the music, I don't know, kind of takes off from that. But this might actually be before it at 91. I don't know. Yeah, I, I think, like, I would have to look it up, but I think uh, the Power Rangers came out a year or two later. That Yeah, it sounds right, because I don't remember. Because 91, I would have been 10, and Power Rangers were definitely not out at that point. Mm-hmm. They, were, they came out when I was older. So there goes my theory. <laughs> oh, well. But, yeah, it, it definitely... Like, um, I know that, like, just in general, the Giver does have, at least the Giver um, himself, not specifically the, the other Zoanoids. I don't know, I just, it's just weird every time I say the word Zoanoid. It's it's hilarious to have some kind of a discussion, and we're, we're the Giver <laughs> and the Zoanoid. But, um... <laughs> But the look of the Giver definitely has a, a Japanese feel. Like it, it reminds me a lot of Ultraman. Only, yeah, he looks a lot like Ultraman. Um, except instead of having the bright colors, he's he's just very like um, more organic, like a more organic version of Ultraman. And and I know definitely the the thing that always kind of makes me laugh. Whenever the two or three times that he turns into the Giver is the fact that they make a, a point of showing his little antenna pop up. <laughs> yeah, and like the the steam shooting out of the mouth. It's not really a mouth, but yeah, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, the, the mouth vents. Yeah, mouth vents. <laughs> uh, it's good fun. Yeah, it could have been better, but, well, you know, it's fun. And there was actually a sequel, which I also haven't seen, called Dark Hero, which I'm, I'm curious to uh, to find out what direction that goes, if if they try and go into a more serious version, or, or if they keep this just silly juvenile humor in it. 
I haven't seen that, but from what I understand, they try to go a lot more serious and closer to the original comic. Mm-hmm. And I know that that one is rated R and is supposedly a lot more violent. And that's the thing I noticed about this one. There were a lot of moments where they could have gone like R horror movie gory, but they cut away. Like there's a part where um, the Michael Berryman monster, the guy with the big bone in the front of his head, like he, the Giver, like sticks his hands in that and like almost rips his head in half. But they don't really show anything other than the beginning and the end of that. And so I feel like there's probably an R-rated cut in some vault somewhere <laughs> that I wish was out because it would probably make it more fun, uh, at least for me. But yeah, I, 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 the sequel is supposedly um, I don't know because I get the feeling that they probably didn't film that. I, I imagine because I, I think they were probably going for PG-13 and just the fact that to create all that gore would cost a lot more money with the yeah, special perhaps. effects budgets. So they, they probably... And and also there is a director's cut, which I, I believe was the version that I watched. Yeah, I did notice something about that at the beginning. It said like the director's cut is rated PG thirteen. So yeah, maybe this is all there is, and I just have to imagine. But maybe the sequel remedies all that if it's rated R. Yeah, and and I believe that there's also uh, some anime versions of the Giver, but uh, I I didn't look. Uh, too deep in, into um, how those were either. Yeah, I don't know anything about them other than they exist. I know there's an 80s one, and then I think there's a newer one as well. But, I, I yeah, I don't know. One of these days, maybe I'll watch them. Yeah, but I, I definitely think that it, it's an interesting concept, but uh, this was just really so goofy and definitely just a, a cheesy B-movie. But I, I it, it made me laugh several times throughout the course of the movie so it, it was definitely fun to watch but it's hard to know who to who to really recommend watching it unless you're like a, a fan of these bad goofy b-movie sci-fi films it uh, i definitely would check it out if you're a fan of like practical special effects and, and creature effects because that is really the high point of this film yeah, by far, by far. It is definitely a hard movie to recommend, though. You gotta, you gotta have a, a strong will to get through these B movies. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's. Uh, even though I haven't seen it yet, it's not. It's not on the level of bad of like the room. Yeah, I haven't seen that also. But um, have you seen Troll Two? No, I haven't seen that one either. But okay, well, it's definitely not at Troll Two level. Where <laughs> just everything is so ridiculous i mean i like b movies and by about halfway through troll 2 i was exhausted from just the amount of things that were thrown at me that just didn't make sense and were hilarious and i just couldn't laugh anymore i, I mean that's halfway through i was just in total fatigue but yeah, yeah troll 2 is great yeah this i mean this is like somewhat of a competent movie it does have a plot it has acting but everything's just kind of on on a mediocre scale and then the there's it kind of wavers between just so bad that it's hilarious and then just kind of very mediocre yeah a lot of the actual jokes aren't that funny but there's a lot of funny in the non-jokes i guess the unintentional stuff Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just you know if you if you go in with the right attitude, if you don't 
expect it to be serious, then, you know, you probably have a good time. Yeah. All right, well, I think that wraps it up for this episode of FilmWise. I'd like to thank you again for talking with me today. Yeah, it was great. Thank you for having me. All right, and why don't you go ahead and just quickly remind everybody where they can find you online. Uh, I'm Will uh, at Silver Emulsion, and that's silveremulsion.com, and I'm on Twitter at Silver Emulsion. And as always, I am Bubba Wheat, and you can find me at flightstightsandmovienights.com. You can find me on Twitter at Bubba Wheat, and you can also follow the show on iTunes, on Stitcher Radio, and at Podomatic. And the, the show also has a Twitter account at FilmWise, where you can uh, get the latest updates on what movies will be coming out in future episodes, and um, and I'll share the the uh, episode posters as I create them. Um, and if if you want to follow me there, uh, go ahead. And uh, if you want to know what guests have been on previous um, episodes, uh, all the the people I follow on my FilmWise account have all been guests on the show at one point or uh, or our upcoming guests. And if you want to. F- this regular episode, go ahead and listen through to the end for the mashup trailer. Until next time. He's like a superhero who has special powers, but doesn't know how to use them yet. Go home before the bad guys do something bad to you. I am... Idiot! Where is it? Maybe you should take the tape off of his mouth? Look up idiot in the dictionary. You know what you'll find? A picture of me? No! The definition of the word idiot. That's how I roll. See, this is what I'm talking about. Old school method. Give me Gabe Perry on the phone. This is the worst Christmas ever.